Our scripture passage for this morning comes from the book of Matthew chapter 9. Four verses from verses 14 to 17. Hear now the word of God. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. But no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, For the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. But if it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts today. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, would you help us today that we would hear and appreciate your word in its simplicity. Help us not to be carried away with unnecessary detail, but instead help us to see what Jesus has for us to know about himself and about your work of salvation. Help us by the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Today's passage begins with a question about fasting. Um, And I think we're used at this point to the Pharisees interrogating Jesus and and pressing upon Jesus. Uh, But instead, actually, this morning, it's not the Pharisees. It is the disciples of John the Baptist. So apparently... Uh, They are fasting, and the Pharisees are fasting, but Jesus' own disciples are not fasting, and they notice it. There's something visible about that. What's the cause of why they differ? Why are these practices so divergent, and they notice it so much? And you might think then that this is a passage that is about fasting, and yet Jesus doesn't give an answer about fasting. Jesus seems to ignore fasting altogether. And so when he gives an answer, it's not actually a practical question. He goes theological. He goes deeper. He goes underneath of the reason why their posture is different than the posture of these who are still living in the Old Testament period. The Pharisees and the disciples of John the Baptist are still living in the Old Testament. Uh, They have not yet embraced, and some of them may never embrace, the reality of the new and what God is doing. And so because fasting is about mourning, he says that mourning is not something that is appropriate at this time. He says fasting doesn't match with this epoch of history. It is not a time for people to mourn, Jesus says. It's as, it's as if Jesus is saying the new covenant has broken in here. And so the time of mourning is not now. The joy of the new covenant is incompatible with the mourning of the old covenant that the Pharisees and John's disciples are living in. You see, Jesus uh, says that fasting is the symptom of a deeper conviction. The subject of fasting is not really the point of this section. You see, the practice grows out of the theology. 
And so Jesus' answer doesn't give a practical response. Instead, it's a theological response. He says that the way that we act comes from our foundational beliefs about what is going on, where we stand in time. And so the lack of fasting by Jesus and the lack of fasting by his disciples is merely the occasion for Jesus to reflect on what is different between these people, people who are living in the Old Testament period, that being John's disciples and the Pharisees, and these people who are living in the New Testament period, Jesus and his disciples. See, the single biggest conflict in the early church was actually the question of what is new about the coming of Christ and what is old about the coming of Christ. Now that Jesus has come, is, is everything just the same, just with Jesus sprinkled on top now? Is, is it just, it's all the same, but Jesus is now part of the equation. There was a great debate about this in the early church, and the Council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15 had to take place in part because the Judaizers wanted to flash freeze everything as it was, but just with Jesus now. They said, what if we just kept everything the same and we just added Jesus? So law plus Jesus. That was the Judaizers' plan. That was their outlook. Um, everything stays the same as it was before, ceremonies and all, only now we just have a better sacrifice. They wanted to live in the old covenant, and they wanted to keep it going. They didn't want to move to the better things that God had for his people in the new covenant. And by the way, I've used the word covenant here a couple times. Uh, this is a subject where we could go very deeply, and we would benefit a lot from it if we decided to go deeply on the subject of covenants. But let me just say this. In the Bible, God deals with people by way of covenants. So a covenant is, is an agreement between two parties, and it creates this binding relationship with mutual obligations. In those covenants, each party makes promises, and each party says, if I don't keep my promise, may I be punished in this or that way. And they'll usually enumerate the ways that they would be punished if they broke the promise. And so when God deals with people in Scripture, this is, this is how he deals with them. He deals with them as a king, dealing with his subjects. And they may, he makes a promise to them, and they make a promise to him. God makes agreements with people, and he makes promises and those are promises that are intended to build their assurance that they can trust him to keep his word. So when I say old covenant today, I mean the way that God was dealing with his people before the coming of Christ. In other words, I'm really talking about the law of Moses with its regulations and its rules and its sacrifices and its ceremonies. Um, the covenant with Moses isn't the only covenant before the coming of Jesus, but it is the context into which Jesus is born. It's the context into which the Pharisees think about all of these things. And it seems to be the, what the New Testament writers mean when they use the term old covenant. Uh, for example, Paul says that when the Jews read the old covenant, a veil remains unlifted. And he's talking, of course, about the law of Moses there. So I think that's what the New Testament authors refer to is Moses. They're talking about the law of Moses. So I'm going to use that term, Old Covenant, today. It's interchangeable with the law of Moses as far as I'm concerned, but I'm going to try to keep with that Old Covenant, New Covenant language today and try not to switch too much because I think that's confusing when people do that. Um, and so when I say New Covenant today, I'm talking about the way that God dealt with his people after the coming of Christ. Um, I could say more, 
but I think actually as we go through the passage, you'll see what I'm talking about. Uh, Jesus is saying that there is something old going on here, and he's saying there is something new going on. Uh, There's something old because in spite of the new patch on the garment, it's still clothing that we're talking about in the same illustration. They're parts of the same thing. In the discussion of the wineskin, there may be old wine and new wine being talked about, but we're still talking about the same substance, right? We're still talking about wine. And so there's, there's meant to be a carryover. There's meant to be something that is consistent from time to time in the illustration Jesus is using. He's talking about how the new intersects with and works with what came before. How does the new and the old fit together? What Jesus is, is saying is part of the key to why the early church had to move on to the newer, better covenant. The, the covenant that was spoken of and promised, for example, in places like Jeremiah 31, where, where, Jesus, where God told his people that he was going to bring a new, better covenant, that he was going to put his spirit in the hearts of the children. So even if it's hard to see, Jesus is really teaching the antidote to the Judaizers here. Right? The antidote is to see that the old has to be fulfilled in order for the new to come in. And so we need to be aware of the temptation to Judaize, to even look for it in our own hearts. We need to look for it in our own lives. What does it mean to Judaize? You know, in one sense, to Judaize means to require the details and the ceremonies of the Old Testament, that they still be binding on believers. Uh, that looked like teaching that you could not be saved unless you kept the law of Moses with its ceremonies and its rituals and its sacrifices and its festivals. But that's not the only way that Judaizing shows its head in our lives, right? We can fall into the same error if we don't see what's new about what Jesus came to do. Uh, Some of us can see that there's a lot of similarity between God's work in the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, and and we can do it so much that we might be tempted to flatten out all the covenants and the epochs of God's work in history, and then we try to look at them as though there's no difference and no distinction between the Old and the New at all. And that's what the Judaizers did. They flattened out the covenants, and they thought that there was no difference at all between what came before and after Jesus came. The only exception being Jesus himself. So there are these two errors, right? Seeing only continuity, seeing flatness between God's dealing throughout history. But then there's also the error of just not seeing the continuity between these covenants and thinking that they are so radically different from one another that they are just different systems of salvation and different ways of being saved. And that's a serious error as well. And Jesus is telling us that today, that the answer is in an appreciation of both. We need to be able to answer the question, what is old about the coming of Jesus? What is it that in Jesus' coming that is in harmony with what came before? But we also need to see that Jesus comes, and as he does, he also disrupts the old framework of things too. He disrupts them because he fulfills them. He doesn't abolish them. He fulfills them. There's something new about the coming of Jesus, not just something old. It's not all the same as what came before. And that means that we also need to answer the question, what is it that's new about the new covenant? Um, What is it that has changed, if anything, from what came before Jesus' life and ministry, death and resurrection? 
Jesus is saying that the Pharisees and the disciples of John, by mourning and fasting, aren't recognizing that the new wine is here. And if they try pouring Jesus into the old skins, those old expectations, he's going to burst those expectations and he'll devastate what they thought they were going to get with the Messiah. So the thing Jesus is coming to do cannot be simply fit into the expectations, the ceremonies, the framework of the old ways and the old traditions of Judaism, especially I'm speaking under the covenant with Moses. So let's talk about why that is. Let's talk about why that is. As much as hopefully you're not confused, but by this point, if you are, there is some comfort here. At least the passage itself is simple, right? Uh, It's four verses, but the scope is massive. Jesus says so few words here, and yet he, he says so much. And so at least our outline is simple. It's, it's two parts. Jesus brings something old and something new. So something old, something new. Those are our, our two points this morning. But because the scope of what is going on here is so grand, we could get overwhelmed by it. We could actually get lost in the subject, and you could just feel like you were sitting there listening to the pastor nerd out for a while. And I don't want that. Uh, by God's grace, that won't happen. Uh, But it's important for us to know what is it that's old about the new covenant and what is it that's new about the new covenant. I think Jesus wants us to know. He wants us to take it in. But to do that, we have to look beyond this passage. We need to look at other places where the scripture speaks about these things. And so first, let's appreciate what is old about the new covenant. What is old? So John's disciples come to Jesus. They want to know, why aren't you and your guys fasting And Jesus explains why in verses 16 and 17. And the way he illustrates, the way he illustrates this, his answer, is that he doesn't fit their expectations. Uh, He and what he is doing are the unshrunk cloth. He's using this metaphor, this illustration. Jesus was a master of illustrations. The old covenant, what came before, was an old garment that wouldn't fit what is coming. So the the second illustration he uses is of the new covenant and and the new wine. He says that he won't fit with the old wineskin. You need a new wineskin. You need a new expectation. You still need wine, but you need need it to to fit into a new skin. So notice that when he talks about the old and new covenants, he's, he's talking about two things that are like each other and two things that are distinct from each other. There is continuity and there's discontinuity in this story. Uh, Ways that the new covenant fits what has happened before and ways that the new covenant isn't identical with what came before. So he's telling us there's development and there is growth from the old covenant to the new covenant. So to begin with, let's think about what's old. What's old about the new covenant? What is it that carries over between the old and new covenant? I want to give you the simple answer, and then give you some more detail. The simple answer is God's way of salvation is old. God's way of salvation is old. The gospel message is old. The gospel is the same between both covenants. The way that God has saved sinners has not fundamentally changed. And here's what I mean by that. The gospel tells us that God saves sinners by grace, through faith, and Jesus Christ alone. 
And that message, you may be surprised to know, did not exactly come into existence in the first century AD in the ministry of Jesus. It came much earlier. It was promised much earlier. Uh, people knew about the gospel long beforehand. Um, and, you know, the, the, the need for a savior has not changed. There has always been a need for a savior. Uh, I remember as a kid, um, you may have heard me say this before. If so, my apologies. It won't be the last time you hear something from me twice. But I remember as a kid, I was probably 12, 13 years old, very serious about the Lord. I wanted to know him better. Uh, and I felt like I asked my pastor, how did people get saved in the Old Testament? And, he, and I remember being so frustrated that he didn't seem able to just give me a clear answer. He didn't seem comfortable saying anything to me. Um, he, he, seemed to, he, he gave me a, a long, long, long answer. And after, at the end of it all, he almost said it with a, you know that tone of voice where you end with a question, where you say, uh, yes? <laughs> and then you end with that question mark, you can hear it. Uh, that's kind of what I felt when I got, when I, when I heard his answers. And, and I, I didn't see how all of it fit together. I didn't understand the, the situation between the Old and the New Testament. I just wanted to know why is that old, half the Bible in the back half there? What's the role that it plays? Why do we have it at all? And I, I was 12 years old. I wasn't a theology nerd yet. Um, I don't, and because I wasn't a theology nerd, I don't think this is a theology nerd question. So even now, if you've, you've heard me saying covenant, covenant, uh, continuity, discontinuity, these are all nerd, nerd language, right? And you're, you maybe, I hope your brain isn't shutting off and going, well, that's not for me. And it's like, look, a 12-year-old kid wanted to know about this. And so, you know, Lean in instead of leaning back, you know. This is a question that, that Christians should yearn to see. These are things that we should yearn to look into. How did God save people before Jesus came? Well, look at the scriptures. The earliest proclamation of the gospel that we have recorded in scripture in its most primitive form is found in Genesis 3.15. One of the most interesting things about that is, do you know who the gospel gets preached to? The serpent. The serpent is the recipient of what we call the proto-gospel, the early version of the gospel. And, and when he's God is talking to the serpent and he tells the serpent that one day there is a snake crusher and he's going to come and he's going to smash your head, snake. And he's going to defeat you, this seed that's coming from this woman whom you have, you have contributed to the fall. You have led this man and this woman into deception and they... From them is going to come the one is going to crush your head. And so that promise that Satan would be defeated by a seed of the woman, that's an old promise. That's as old as the human race. And so Adam and Eve heard this promise. It's an old promise. Abraham is told by God in Genesis 17, 14 chapters later, that he's going to be the father of a multitude of nations and God promises to be a God to Abraham and to his offspring after him. And so the promise of Abraham is the promise of ages that, that all believers hope in. It is the thing that we still uh, are engrafted into when we put our faith in Jesus. Even that promise back in Genesis 17 is ours when we trust in Jesus, that God would be our God and that we would be his people. Everything that we know, everything that we love about the gospel is rooted 
in these amazing promises which itself grow out of that first promise in the garden to the snake crusher. This promise and this hope is the constant message that runs through all of Scripture. It's the string that if you picked it up in Genesis 3, you could just start following it all the way, and I can't, I'm not going to mime walking across the stage, but imagine that I walk all the way from Genesis to the book of Revelation. You hold onto that string all the way from the beginning to the very end. Um, look how Paul describes this in Galatians 3, 8. You know, maybe you think, you're talking about Abraham hearing the gospel. That seems like awfully, that seems like a stretch. Well, look at Galatians 3, 8. Paul is talking and he says, the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So think of what Paul is, is saying here. He is saying that when Abraham heard God say, in you shall all the nations be blessed, Abraham was hearing the gospel. That is what Paul is saying. He doesn't stutter, and he says it very clearly. Abraham was a recipient of the gospel. And it's not like he just passively heard it and thought, huh, that's interesting. Paul actually says that Abraham heard it, and he believed it. He believed it. See, that message is the same message that I try to preach Sunday after Sunday. Believe on the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. And the essential content of that gospel was preached to Abraham thousands of years before Jesus was even born. This is one of the most important points of continuity between the old and the new covenant, the way that someone is saved. When, when Jesus is talking about the wineskin, remember, he's not talking about how the new covenant is wine and the old covenant is, is bread or some other illustration. He's saying the old and the new are both wine. He wants you to see what's the same. And the essence, the most important part, you might say, is all there between both. See, God's people were always saved by means of the gospel, through faith in the Savior. Whether you're in the new covenant era or whether you're in the old covenant era, we were all saved the same way, by looking to Jesus. In the old covenant, they looked forward to Jesus with hope. In the new covenant era, we look back to Jesus with hope. One of us looks forward, one of us looks back. Same Savior, same faith, different directions. Another area of continuity, similarity that we need to see, and that we may not think of, is that the Holy Spirit ministered to Israel under the old covenant. If you tried to say, what's new about the new covenant? Well, we have the Holy Spirit. Well, that wouldn't exactly be a good way of putting it because under the old covenant, the Holy Spirit rested upon the elders of Israel so they could direct the people in Numbers 11. Uh, you saw in Exodus 31, the Spirit of God filled people so they could accomplish important works for the Lord. Uh, the Spirit of God came upon the judges of Israel in order to deliver the people. Uh, you saw David saying that God's Spirit upheld him and gave him joy in God's salvation. So if you were to look in the Old Testament, you would find God at work, the Holy Spirit ministering to God's people, doing exactly what it is that they need most when they need it most. So much of what we see in the New Testament, we actually do see the Holy Spirit doing for people in the Old Testament as well. 
So what I want you to see repeatedly is this. God has been at work throughout the history of redemption, saving sinners through Jesus, no matter which covenant someone was living under. Whether you lived in 2000 AD or 2000 BC, you have always needed Christ and you have always been meant to look back or look forward to him for salvation. So let me ask the so what question, right? Uh, at this point, you're thinking, okay, you, you said you were not nerding out, but I feel like you're nerding out a little bit. Um, why does any of this matter to me? Why would I care? Why would I get excited about this? Um, how is this a help to me as a Christian? How does this help me to see that these two covenants are, are tied together, to see how close they really are to each other? And I'm just going to throw some bullet point reasons at you. I'm just going to give you some reasons why you should care. Because seeing all how these tie together deepens our understanding of every aspect of the Christian life. You know, Jesus is convinced that it's practical. That's what's the practicality of this for Jesus. He's saying, this is why I'm not fasting. This is why my disciples aren't fasting. In other words, it's practical. Um, this deepens our understanding of the atonement. It deepens our understanding of what Jesus did at the cross. Um, it deepens our understanding of the sacraments, of the Lord's Supper. It helps us understand what it means to be part of God's people. It helps us to wrap our heads around baptism and what baptism means. It deepens our understanding of assurance, right? Seeing the lengths that God has gone to throughout history to save his people reminds us of the care that he has for us. It deepens our sense of security, it helps us to see that all of redemptive history has not been plan B. It has been plan A from the beginning, intentionally uh, plotted out and designed and executed by our God. And it, and it helps us to see that Christians are the true and rightful heirs of Abraham. One of the things that Paul is constantly reinforcing throughout scripture, that it is not those who are simply physical descendants of Abraham who are sons of Abraham, but those who trust in Christ who are the sons of Abraham. It reminds us that the God of the Old Testament is the same as the God of the New. Our God is the same yesterday and today and forever. He has not changed. What an incredible thing to remember that our God has been doing one work throughout all of human history. And it helps us to see how all of God's work has been one grand purpose with one grand goal. How can we see this and not be blessed? The work of God in the new covenant is an old work. Now, the second thing we need to appreciate in what Jesus is saying this morning is, is that while the new covenant has this old core, something old and consistent with what was before, there is also something new about the new covenant. After all, it's, it's called the new covenant. Um, this comes out, of course, in the idea of the unshrunk cloth and the new wine, right? What is this unshrunk new piece of cloth? What is this new wine really? Well, the book of Hebrews gives us a bit of a clue. It tells us that the original covenant was not faultless. That's the phrase that, that the author uses in Hebrews 8, 7. He says that the, the old covenant wasn't faultless. It was missing something. In fact, uh, Hebrews 7, 22, he tells us that Jesus' redemptive work has become the guarantee of what he calls a better covenant. He uses that language. He says it's a better covenant. 
And then the author of Hebrews says Jesus' ministry is much more excellent than the old because the covenant he mediates is better. So the author of Hebrews definitely holds out this, this idea of the old covenant and the better covenant, right? The old covenant and the better covenant. What's, 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 what is that? Well, when Paul writes in his letters, he doesn't talk about the history of redemption as if it's one big, long, flat, undifferentiated whole. Instead, he talks about it almost like a series of, of eras or, or epochs or, or periods, right? He talks about the era of Adam, the era of Abraham, the era of Moses, the era of, of David, the era of the new covenant when Jesus comes. Um, all of them, though, are God fulfilling his one single covenant of grace that he made with Abraham. Remember, we're still holding the same string. We're still going along the same line. We're moving towards the same destination, and we're following the same promise, which he promises he'll never break. But he also talks about it being accomplished in stages. And so we need to reckon with, we need to appreciate what he did in the new covenant that's actually new. And so obviously the old covenant, while it continued on and it, it brought us to Jesus and pointed people to Jesus, it wasn't meant to continue forever. And after all, that's what the author of Hebrews is saying, that it wasn't faultless. He says that was a faultless covenant is not the one that's going to carry you into eternity. And so that leads us to the question, if the old covenant also was pointing us to Jesus, if the old covenant also contained all of this focus on the heart and focus on the need for faith in Christ, then what could actually possibly be new about the new covenant? Is it just a superficial newness? What is the something new that Jesus is talking about? Well, one thing that's new in, is that the new covenant era is an era of fulfillment. It's an era where the types and the shadows that came before give way to the substance, to the real thing. Uh, we have fulfillment now. And we did not have fulfillment before. We only lived in promise before. That's something that's different. That's very different. Um, use the word type. I could definitely imagine somebody going, wait, what do you mean by type? A type is a, it's a, it's a technical theological word. It's, it's from scripture. It's not something that somebody made up so that they could just sound fancy. A type is a specific word used in scripture for a person or an event or a ceremony in scripture that points forward to something that is greater than itself. So it's something that builds anticipation. Um, Paul in Romans points back at, at Adam in the book of Genesis, and he says that he's a type. What does he say that Adam is a type of? He says he's a type of Jesus. So the plan is that when you look at Adam in the Old Testament, this disappointing figure, this, this figure who we all failed in, you're meant to look at him and you're meant to think about somebody who is way greater, who's given the same task and doesn't fail at it. And so when Paul says you look at Jesus or Adam and he is a type of Jesus, he means that when you read Genesis chapter 3 and you feel the disappointment in this man, you take that and you put your hope in the greater man who's coming. That's what he means when he says that Adam is a type. You're supposed to be excited by the Adam who comes and removes condemnation instead of bringing condemnation. There's another place where Peter doesn't use the word type, but he uses the concept of a type. He's talking about the, the, the flood of Noah 
Uh, and he says that the flood of Noah corresponded to baptism. And so he seems to be talking about the flood as a type as well. It was an event that wasn't identical with baptism as we know it today, but it was meant to draw our eyes to this thing that was coming later. So that when we see New Testament baptism, we see it being pictured when we see the flood taking place. Uh, Even as it saved those who were safely inside of the ark of Christ, it destroyed those who were baptized and who were outside of Christ, right? So the flood is a type of baptism because it, it conveys judgment, and Peter wants us to see that. So there are types, there are people, there are events in the Old Testament that pointed forward to greater things. And now, where do we live? We live in a time when the things that were being pointed to have actually been accomplished. We no longer live with types. We live with the real thing now, and that is new. Now, the New Testament authors don't just use the word type. They also use the word shadow to describe the ceremonies of the Old Covenant. If you, if you look at Colossians 2.17, for example, it says that the ceremonies of the law of Moses were shadows of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So you also have the author of Hebrews. The author of Hebrews says nearly the same thing about the Old Covenant ceremonies. He calls them a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. There's another place where he says that the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. And so for the author of Hebrews, his argument is that, there is, that, that, ju- that because these were always just shadows, the ceremonies and the sacrifices never actually saved anyone in themselves, right? The blood and bulls of goats can't save anyone. They were like paintings. They were like pictures to get you ready, to get you excited for the true thing when it eventually came. Um, The New Covenant era is an era where the types and the shadows, the pictures, the illustrations that the Old Covenant was giving to us are fulfilled and don't keep getting acted out anymore. See, they are replaced now with the real thing. This is new. When we talk about the newness of the new covenant, we're talking about living in the fulfillment where all of the old pictures don't have to persist any longer because we have the thing that was being pointed to. They have been acted out, but they have been acted out by Jesus once and for all. They've been replaced by the substance himself, by Jesus. So the thing that truly marks the new covenant era is the cross. We live in the shadow of of the cross. We live in the era of fulfillment. We bask in the glow of the accomplishment of the promises. Another aspect of the new covenant that's new is that our attitude to the law under Christ has shifted. Besides being something that convicts and condemns us, under Christ, the law has become a friend and a help to the Christian so that we can see clearly what it looks like to please God and to do it from the heart. Um, The law is not a means of salvation, but it is still a friend to those who know Jesus. Uh, We see a lot of confusion in the church today about the law of God. Some people look at at the scriptures of the Old Testament, and they look at the law contained in it, and they look at it as something that is not helpful to the Christian. They look at it as something that's antagonistic to the gospel. Um... They look at it as it, at God's law, 
and they think of it almost as this negative thing that if we get close to it, we fall into it and it hurts us. Um, This thing that only shows us how bad we are, but that doesn't have anything constructive for the Christian life. And this is one of the great errors that I think Jesus is actually steering us exactly away from here. He's making sure that we do appreciate the the carryover from the old to the new. Um, Many people every day hear from some preacher that the law is bad. But then look at what Paul does in Romans. He says that the problem was never with the law. The law is good. He uses that phrase. He says the law is good. But then he says what the problem is. The problem is us. The problem is our hearts. And so, of course, when you give a good law to a bad person, you will get a bad result. So if you think the law is bad, there's going to be something that comes out of that practically. It's it's something that's going to show up in your life. If you think the law of God is bad, you're going to struggle to appreciate that God's work in the Old Testament continues in the New. Because you will think that his law before was bad and only harmful. We see this attitude come out in churches that are they're bashful about reading the Old Testament in worship. They're, they're bashful about preaching through the Old Testament. Um, you see this in people who might say things like, I obey Christ, not the law. Um, people who think that Jesus came to do something so new that the law is actually discarded uh, or actually done away with. Um, some ministers right now are, may, are becoming quite famous for saying the church needs to, needs to unhitch from the Old Testament. Well, respectfully, Jesus isn't saying that, and Jesus never says that. Um, some Christians, though, as a consequence of this thinking, will even go so far as to reject the Ten Commandments. They'll want to put up on public land, but then if you ask them, do you want to actually do this and live this out, they'll say, I live under Jesus, not the law. Right? So they don't appreciate that Jesus fulfills, but doesn't abolish the law. The New Testament authors, including Jesus himself, they are at pains. They're at pains to make the argument that Jesus was never abolishing or destroying the law. See, the pattern in Scripture, the pattern of what you see is promise and fulfillment, not rejection and repudiation. Now, here was one problem that did follow the early church. It followed Paul from place to place. It followed Jesus' disciples from place to place. Um, People did accuse them of discarding the law of Moses. They, They accused them of saying that the law didn't matter at all, that there was no urgency to obey God, given the message that Paul was preaching and that Jesus preached. Um... They were set on showing them that this wasn't the case. This is what happens. The whole book of Romans is devoted to making sure people understand that the law of God is good and it has a place in the Christian life. There is something new here. Even in how we look at the law, even how we live the law out in our lives, as new covenant believers, we don't simply take up the law like the old covenant believer may have done before, But in Christ, in the fulfillment and freedom he gives, the law of God becomes a rule of life for the believer. It becomes a standard of behavior to which we hold ourselves and by which God guides us. This is something that is new. Because the Christian walks in the shadow of the law, in the shadow of Christ. And he's able to actually take that law and not see it as something that's going to burn him. Something that's going to hurt him. 
something that's going to harm him, but instead he sees the target that his life is meant to aim at. This is who God calls me to be. This is something that is new with the new covenant. We need to see this. There's another thing we need to see with the new covenant. I mentioned before, the spirit was at work back in the old covenant. Back when Jeremiah was making the prophecy of the new covenant, God said, among other things, he said, I will put my law within them and write it on their hearts. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. The scripture tells us this is the work of the Spirit of God. Uh, The law was supposed to be obeyed from the heart under the old covenant as well. But under the new, God's Spirit would be at work turning the hearts of people in greater numbers than ever before. In what sense is the work of the Spirit in the new covenant actually new then? Well, I think you could best describe the difference between the Spirit's work in the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, not as a difference of kind, but as a difference of quantity. He is more at work than he was before. In the New Covenant era, the Spirit isn't just at work. He's said to be poured out in Acts 2.17, poured out on your sons and daughters, uh, poured out even on the Gentiles, Acts 10.45. When the Old Testament spoke of the Spirit being poured out, it was always future. It was God saying, someday I will pour out my Spirit on you. Someday I will pour my Spirit out on your children, but not yet. So under the Old Covenant, the Spirit was was at work. We've seen that He was at work. But in the New Covenant, He is poured out. If you read Acts 2, you read the events of Pentecost... We've all, I think, read through the book of Acts. And if we have, then we are amazed and delighted at the glory of what God's Spirit does in Acts chapter 2. The sort of thing that was promised in the books of Joel and Jeremiah. But they never saw it. He's not doing different things than he did before. But he is doing more of it. And he's doing it in even more generous ways among Jews and Gentiles. Just in terms of sheer quantity after the death and resurrection of Jesus, the Spirit is at work in a measure that He wasn't yet under the old. We're scratching the surface. You might think I've gone deeper than you want, right? Uh, (laughs) But what I hope you start to see here is that even while we're talking about what is new, we're not talking about something completely different, right? We shouldn't see what God promised to Abraham compared with what he granted in the new covenant as being fundamentally different. Yes, there were different ceremonies. There were different types before that pointed to Christ coming later. Yes, the spirit is at work in a greater measure under the new covenant. And yet we're still not talking about night and day when we talk about the covenants. We are talking about what Hebrews calls a newer, better covenant. But we're not talking about covenants that are in opposition to each other. Think of the new growing out of the old like a tree that grows out of a seed, right? The seed, uh, the shell on the seed has to be broken. The bonds have to be burst, but it is the same plant in seed form that eventually breaks through the soil. The same work that God began with Abraham and Moses and David, he continues today through Jesus. Believer, be encouraged. The same God is at work who has been at work throughout the history of his people from the very beginning. From the very beginning of his people, he has been doing one work. Now we've been looking this morning at how the old and the new intertwine together in the work of God. And I 
I, I hope you're convinced that this has always been one work of God from the beginning to the end. But, but hopefully you can also see that there are differences between what came before Jesus and what came after and why it is so much better, so much better to live after. Living with Jesus is better than living with shadows. Amen? <laughs> uh, we have the real thing in Christ, not just the picture. Uh, you know, uh, imagine a, uh, a child who has, who, whose father went off to war before he, before he was ever born. And as he gets older, he sees this photo of his father on the mantle. And he asks his mother, who is that? Who is that? And she says, that's your father. He's coming home. And then every year he looks at that photo of his father. And then one day his father walks through the door and takes him up in his arms. Is there anyone who would say, oh, he would be better off with the photograph on the mantle? No one would say that. Jesus has come. The promise is fulfilled. The picture is completed. He is here. Jesus is so much better than the picture. One thing I didn't mention Probably the biggest difference between the, the old and the new covenant is this. The old covenant didn't last. It was eventually done away with. Jeremiah 31:32 says that Israel broke that covenant. The author of Hebrews tells us that if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. So the first covenant differs from the second in that it did not last. But the fulfillment of the new covenant will never go away. It will never be repealed. It will never be abrogated. The new covenant was promised as far back as Abraham, begun in the life of Jesus, achieved in the death of Christ, guaranteed for us at the resurrection of Jesus, and will come to final, consummate completion in eternity. The new covenant will never go away. It will never change. It is perfect. It remains a promise for us. It remains a promise for our children. There is no plan B. This is the work and the plan of God that he always had to give us the newer, better way of salvation begun in Jesus and accomplished for us forever. Let's praise our God. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, would you use these reminders this morning to stir our hearts to trust in you? Would you use all of this to build our confidence, to ground our assurance, to help us to remember the firm and solid ground that we stand upon in Christ? We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.